When he was young, Martin Pang played Playboy. He wined and dined his paramours on his parents' dime, of course. But underneath the glitz and glamour, there was a dark side to Martin's brand of charisma. Who knows when that evil seed began to grow inside this very lucky boy who was rescued from an orphanage like in a fairy tale. His adopted parents made his every wish come true. But that love, that attention, that Martin can do no wrong devotion just wasn't enough. It would never be enough. As Martin matured into adulthood, he collected a fat paycheck from the family business without doing a lick of work. But the anger deepened too, no doubt stoked by feelings of entitlement and greed, fertile ground for that rage to blossom into violence. He's a bad dude. All of his ex-wives, of which at that time he had four, were really, really afraid of him. By the 1990s, Martin had racked up a couple of failed businesses under his belt, and at the time, his acting career hadn't panned out. By 1994, he was desperate. What was a narcissistic, spoiled rich kid bending toward middle age to do? The constant supply of little red envelopes? Hundreds, it turns out, over the years that his devoted mother would fill with folded up wads of cash. Those envelopes began to dry up the once successful family business that had fueled Martin's exploits for decades had fallen on hard times. Who knows when the idea hit him, Martin's great plan at redemption. But one thing is for sure, it involved leaning into the nickname he'd earned in high school, Pyro Pang, for his reputation of threatening to torch the property of his perceived enemies. But how is it that Pang turned this ire toward his parents, who had only ever showered him with anything and everything. Fancy clothes, fast cars, elaborate trips, boat and airplane rentals. His whole life, he'd been a taker. And so, like that famous childhood book, The Giving Tree, his parents' warehouse could give their golden boy one final sacrifice itself. All it would take was one match. By torching it, the insurance money would restore Martin to the lifestyle he was accustomed to. What Martin hadn't planned for was that four Seattle firefighters would pay the ultimate price, battling the blaze that he started. Lieutenant Walter D. Kilgore. <laughs> Lieutenant Gary A. Shoemaker. Firefighter, Randy R. Turlicker. Firefighter, James T. Brown. And to add insult to injury, Martin wasn't done gaming the system. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. This is such a tough case, Carolyn, because of the innocent lives that were lost. I mean, these were heroes. These were men who just wanted to go in and save life and property, do things for others, and lost their life in the process. It's, it's a tragedy that has stuck with the city of Seattle, as I'm sure we'll see in this episode, uh, for decades and, and will for decades to come. And before we get into the details of this case, I wanted to update everybody on another case where some innocent lives were lost. And we are finally, finally starting to see a little bit of justice for Charlie and Braden Powell. Now, you might remember these are the sons of Susan Cox Powell. She is the, the mother who went missing. We did a, an episode on Susan. We did a two-parter yeah, two on parter. that. And she is missing, presumed dead at the hands of her now-dead husband, Josh Powell. But their sons, Charlie and Brayden, were actually on a visitation with Josh Powell when he blew up their home, leading to the deaths of, well, actually, he murdered the boys, then blew up right. the home. It, it just... 
A murder suicide, tragic murder suicide. Terrible. And and the the hardest part of this is that the boys were supposed to be in the care of the state. And so Charlie and Braden's grandparents had filed a lawsuit against the state of Washington claiming that they didn't do enough to protect those boys. They had enough information. Those boys never should have been in Josh Powell's home in the first place. And we just discovered last week that a judge has awarded the Cox family $98 million for the mishandling of Charlie and Braden's case that led to their deaths. And what's really, uh, you know, looking back, we had the opportunity to interview Ann Bremner, the Seattle attorney, the amazing Seattle attorney who was helping them with their case when the quarantine just started. So they had put that trial on hold because all of a sudden we're in a pandemic. And so she really talked about the case. So we really recommend you going back. The Disappearance of Susan Powell It's a two-part episode. It goes over the case. we, We talk with Ann Bremner who gives those details about what it's like. She's very close with the Cox family. Obviously, she's been working with them for a decade now. And since that episode, I actually had a chance to talk with uh, Charles Cox, who is the grandfather of Charlie and Braden, and uh, get his take on why he brought this lawsuit, what he hopes will come out of the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And we're going to share a little bit more of that in a deepish thought. So I hope you'll look for that as well. But let's get back to this case um, and, and find out what happened to the Seattle firefighters and what happened to the man who killed them. Yes. Well, let's start off with some backstory. And for my sources, let me just say um, they include the Northwest Asian Weekly, the Seattle Times, King 5 News, Cairo 7, and History Link. So this story has to begin with Martin Pang's parents, Mary and Harry. Mary Pang was born and raised in Seattle to Chinese immigrants who traveled to the West to work on the railroads. She was one of 10 children Mm. and graduated from Franklin High School. Harry Pang was a World War II Air Corps veteran who flew on D-Day in Normandy and received a Distinguished Flying Cross. So Mary and Harry met at the University of Washington and married in 1945, and they opened up a little grocery store on Beacon Hill. That's a southeast neighborhood in Seattle that is among the most racially diverse in the city. So a decade into their marriage, Kim, the Pangs adopt two children from China. Sun Hing Hua was born in Hong Kong in 1955, a very turbulent time in China. He was the fifth child, and he was put up for adoption because the family couldn't afford another mouth to feed. By adopting Martin, the Pangs potentially saved him from the great Chinese famine. Now, when I was researching this, it's like I, China has such a deep history, and I think that you know, I just wasn't aware of the fact that there was this great Chinese famine. Which led to the one-child law. Well, and before that, I mean, this, I, I was shocked. But a few years later, after Martin was born, there was a combination of radical agricultural changes and regulation imposed by the government, social pressure, economic mismanagement, and natural disasters such as drought and floods. But what happened was, as a result of all this turmoil... 36 million people died of starvation between 1958 and 1962. I mean, 36 million people. It's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom. And, and, and Martin got scooped up and was, was taken out of that situation. So Martin was six months when he was adopted. And the Pangs also adopted a two-year-old girl from a different family. Both were adopted from the same orphanage. And they named the little girl Marlis. So the Pangs sold their grocery store and went into business with Mary's sister, Ruby Chow, who had started a frozen food business. I want to take a minute to talk about Ruby because she was such a huge influence in Seattle. She was a rising star then. She had opened Ruby Chow's in 1948 in Seattle. Now, this was the first Chinese restaurant outside of what was then called Chinatown. It's now called Chinatown International District. And was a popular hot spot with the political and business elite of Seattle and a magnet for celebrities. Ruby was a mover and a shaker. She was a waitress. She was like ran the was was a host. I mean, she just did it all. She hobnobbed with all of these like elite people and got this really great reputation. And and her her restaurant just took off. And over her career, she helped a lot of people, including a young Bruce Lee, and here she is talking about how their how their paths crossed. Bruce came up here, uh, came up to Seattle to see the fair, and he liked it very much. He, then he told me he wasn't shy about it. He told me that he wanted to prove to his father that he could 
go to university without him? And would I let him stay with us? And he's a very smart young man, very talented one, and a very handsome young man, and very resourceful. So Ruby had a lot of irons in the fire. So can I just ask? Yeah, yeah. Did Bruce Lee live with her? Yes, he lived with her, and he waited tables at the restaurant. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it really is. And it shows, like, she was, you know, in that interview as she's later in life, um, you know, she really talks about, like, she would help people if she could. She just really built bridges in the community. And so she was friends with uh, Bruce Lee's parents. And so he came to her and said, hey, and, and she's like, yes. So, as I mentioned, you know, Ruby had started this frozen food business. The Pangs go into it with her, and they would use her restaurant kitchen during off hours to prepare, cook, and package the frozen food by hand. Now, you have to remember, there was no Chinese frozen food at that time. So, this was like a re- uh, they started at the, the ground floor of this business, and it really took off. Unfortunately, the partnership soured. It's not clear what caused the bad blood between the two sisters, but... Ruby left the frozen food business, and unfortunately, the sisters wouldn't speak for 30 years. Oh, that's sad. That's disappointing. I, I mean, clearly they were close if they mm-hmm. were sharing the facilities like that. But but going into business together is is super stressful, and especially when you talk about using a, the same kitchen as a restaurant during the day and then to create these frozen foods at night. I could see there being a lot of conflict there with how space is used and how things are left every day. And I mean, that that can create a lot of conflict. Well, and if you think that they that they were both of them came from a family of 10 children, you know, how that might have affected the other siblings and the the parents. You know, when you have these familial rifts, you know, people probably are like, how can you not talk to your sibling for 30 years? Well, you had nine other siblings. So, you know, (laughs) just pick one of them. Yeah. So. So anyway, Ruby eventually went into Seattle politics, and among her accomplishments, she was considered a major bridge between Seattle's Chinese community and the city at large. She was the first Asian American member of the King County Council and would serve three terms, and she was known for her civic activism. But let's get back to the Pangs. In 1963, they moved the frozen food business into a warehouse that was built in 1908 in Chinatown, and Mary Pang became the face of that business. By the 1980s, though, I mean, they had just worked so hard. They built this business, as I said, from the ground up, and revenues were over a million dollars. Now, for kicks, I looked up how much a million dollars would be worth today compared with in 1980, and it would be worth over $3.3 million. A year. A year. So yeah, that's, so, yeah so they're that's doing a, well. That's a big chunk of change. And the Pangs moved their family to Mercer Island. It's a very affluent island near Seattle. They had an amazing view, but a very sad family dynamic seemed to be playing out. As the Pangs poured their heart and soul into the business, working seven days a week, you know, Martin was extremely favored from the moment that that they were adopted. And Marlis was harshly disciplined by the parents. Her life was a living hell because Martin, you know, he was like a huge bully. And for him, feeling superior to his victims like Marlis, she was the perfect target. She was known to be timid, unsure of herself, and scared of him. So it's like that family dynamic where they're latchkey kids. You know, their parents are working really hard. He was known to lock her out of the house. I mean, it was just a really, like, they had all this affluence. But, you know, like every other family, there's there's some drama going on there. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it was kind of more than the, the typical drama in families because it's worth noting that Marlis graduated from high school. She left home, moved to San Francisco, and never returned. Mm. So I looked into this a bit deeper and was told that when Marlis left... She walked out the door and went to I-5 and just hitched a ride with an older couple to California. Wow. Her parents never searched for her. They knew she was in California but had actually written her into their will for $1 in the hopes that she wouldn't be able to contest it. Their disdain for her and her memory was allegedly palpable. Marlis was a name not mentioned often in that their house. That is household. so sad and, and not understanding why yeah that's the hardest part it's like what yeah and all my research I wasn't that that was as as much as I could get about what happened there but apparently Martin could do no wrong and Mm. she was shy and I, I mean I can't I can't explain it but that's what I've got so far but 
All that was fine by Martin. When he did speak of Marlis, he would say unpleasant, mean-spirited, and aggressive things like she didn't deserve any of the family's wealth. It's obvious that the only thing that Marlis was to Martin was a threat to his parents' wealth. Mm. So from spoiled brat to entitled teen, Martin loved fast cars, speedboats, and travel. He wasn't into getting good grades, and as a teen, he was known to have anger issues and acted recklessly. He, his peers would later give him the nickname Pyro Pang for threatening to burn the homes and businesses of people who wronged him. Yeah, so I was looking up pyromania because I knew this case was going to be this fits about yeah about somebody setting a fire like this and um, and also I could sort of relate when I was in high school I was kind of the one who was always tapped to start the bonfires and things like that because I I was just kind of good at it and Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it Mm -hmm. not to say that I was in any way a pyromaniac but I can understand the fascination and the enjoyment of well what did you enjoy because I enjoy being able to accomplish the task of setting a fire. Like, I feel really good about, like, okay, guys, watch me build this fire. Yeah. You know, I've watched enough seasons of episodes of Survivor to be like, <laughs> yeah. What? But, but I feel like with you, as you're describing it, your well, eyes it's are like, lighting up. It's a little bit more. It's usually a challenge of, like, how big of a fire can you create? Mm-hmm. And that was the fun for me, was to see how big can you make this fire but still make it a contained fire, right? Like, not yeah. let it get out of hand and... Um, and I could make some pretty big fires. Yeah. It sounds like <laughs> so your personality, too. <laughs> it's, it's like a, it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a level of, like, control over something that can be so dangerous and mm-hmm. so scary for some people. But then at the same time, to feel like I can have a level of control over it is, is a little bit like you get a little high off of that, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean. I think that's a great description of it because, like, I have a relative when he was a little boy And, you know, my kids were into lighting fireworks, but he really, really got into it. Like, I loved watching him because just there was this, like, some, like, a spark, a magic. Like, I can just see him holding his little Coke can and just being like, I'm so excited. And just I see that same kind of excitement within (laughs) you talking about, you know, playing, playing with fire. Right, right. And, you know, seeing the different colors that you can make depending mm-hmm. on what you're burning. And, and anyways, there's there's so many things that you can do with it. But when it comes to the actual disorder, the, the pathological disorder of pyromania, according to Psychology Today, people with pyromania are deeply fascinated by fire. Of course, they may also experience feelings of satisfaction or release of built up inner tension or anxiety through setting fires. And I could I could see that I was I was a tense and anxious person as as a kid. So you know, I could see that. I didn't as, know that as an adult as well. But um, but yeah. So they say it's it's more common in males than females. It tends to be connected with people who have learning disabilities or lack social skills. It also tends to overlap with people who have other issues like mood disorders or substance use disorders. They have impulse control issues. Mm-hmm. That's when it becomes it goes from being like a fascination with fire to becoming pyromania. You, you don't have the impulse control. You you use it in a way to hurt other people, things like that. So that's when it kind of like crosses well, the line. And, and Martin certainly did that. He would use it to threaten people and seem to enjoy to do to do that. But after high school, uh, Martin went to college for a couple of years, then dropped out and continued to suck off his parents' generosity. By then, Martin really had perfected how to get money without doing anything for it, at least very little. He loved to act intellectually superior to others and act like the big shot, driving a company-leased Porsche while he collected that paycheck through the family business. One neighbor said, quote, I've been told by people who work down there that he liked the title and salary, but not the work. And then there were his marriages between 1978 and 1989. Pang got married four times. None lasted longer than 19 months, and each were filled with rage and violence. Violent man that often uh, threatened to use fire against enemies. He's a bad dude, but all of his ex-wives, of which at that time he had four, were really, really afraid of him. That's Duff Wilson. He was one of the amazing Seattle Times investigative reporters who lived and breathed this case. And I was able to talk to him about his incredible work on this case, getting the inside scoop of what was going on inside these toxic marriages. So his first wife was hospitalized for a broken back, nose, and eardrum after he attacked her in 1979. She pressed charges but would later retract them the night before the trial out of fear. Martin allegedly killed her pets and threatened to burn down her house. 
Martin's second marriage lasted seven months, and it's alleged that he drained her life savings of $5,000 and backhanded her, which broke her jaw, and he beat her on other occasions. According to a police report, after the couple separated in 1983, it's alleged that Martin scaled the wall of her home using suction cup devices, broke in, and beat her up. I mean, can you imagine how frightening that would be? That's insane. Well, and it makes me think that anybody who's dating someone and thinking of marrying them should do a criminal background check at this point. I mean, well, and we've talked about this so many times. I'm sure he probably did not have, a, a, as you'll find out, nothing ever came of any uh, of these things. So there things. would be police reports, but there would be no convictions That's or trials right. or anything. Yes, uh-huh. yes. So there was one thing that happened, which I'll get to in a minute. But Martin's third wife, Risa Johansson, had a child with him and worked for Pang's parents at the warehouse. After she divorced Martin, she and their daughter went to live with his parents and continued working for the Pangs. Martin threatened to kill Johansson in one phone call after their, their divorce, according to police records. So police records also revealed that Martin's fourth marriage ended, uh, and she reported that Martin had tried to hire somebody to kill her and that he allegedly threatened to set fire to her home. It's alleged that during these marriages, Martin would have girlfriends on the side and was an expert at the art of lying and concealing. His mood swings would change on a dime from raging anger to faux compassion that was convincing until you fully understood the true evil that lie inside Martin when his wives would look into his eyes in that moment of rage or hatred and see the depths of darkness. So Martin, it sounds like he terrorized his ex-wives, and yet he was never really called to account for these actions. In one case against one of his ex-wives, he was ordered by a judge to take classes in anger management. But I think that was about it. So a picture is beginning to emerge. You know, you have a selfish, entitled man who has all these failed marriages and several failed business ventures. Martin would eventually move to California in an attempt to become an actor, ironically, The one part he did land was as a rescuer in a made-for-TV movie where he helped victims in the World Trade Center bombing. (laughs) So it's almost like he played a firefighter. I know. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, clearly he had some acting chops because he kept convincing people to marry him. Yeah. He had to have a way of— Well, and one of the things that I read, you know, he really knew how to wine and dine— you know, these relationships and the the parents' money fueled this. And, you know. So he knew the right things that he should be doing. Oh, yeah. And and he knew what to say. <laughs> and he knew, like, you know, I mean, I can imagine a woman feeling swept off their feet. You have this person. You do this lavish lifestyle. Maybe he gets them gifts. They go in great restaurants. And then you see the other side of it, right? So in the 90s, the business suddenly, though, it isn't doing so well. The frozen food business was sliding, a victim of increased competition. Business was slow. The the plant was operating only sporadically. Martin could have rolled up his sleeves and tried to help his aging parents turn the ship around. Yeah, because how old were they at this point? They had to be at least in their 50s, 60s. No, I think they were in their 60s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, they spent their entire life building this business, essentially. uh, But no not to quote Pyro Pang. Instead, Martin tries to talk his parents into selling the building, believing they'll give him a chunk of the proceeds, but they refuse. They finally tell him no. Well, because this is what, I mean, I can imagine, like, this is their legacy. Yeah. Like, this is their... They've spent decades they've spent building decades this up. decades building yeah. this. They were known, and they would work seven days a week, you know, from sunup to sundown. I mean, they, their work ethic was incredible. And, you know, I'm sure they were just like, hope that their son would step up. But that didn't happen. Around this time, Martin starts talking about torching his parents' building for the insurance money. He confides in a very unlikely confidant, his ex-wife, Risa. The one who's living with his parents. Yes, and she was his third wife. And Risa, despite the abuse she suffered at Pank's hand, she still worked with the family And circumstances forced her into playing a dangerous game. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Remember, they had a daughter together, and she was still very much afraid of him and believed he was pretty much capable of anything. She listened to him and humored his plans of burning down the building, but also hoped it was all talk. So I have to kind of set the stage here because in in 
one of the things that I read, she had tried because I'm sure you're wondering, well, why didn't she just go to his parents if she was close to him? But I, I also think that there have probably been so many times throughout their relationship where he has threatened to burn things down. <laughs> yeah. And how many times did he actually carry it out? It doesn't sound like he really carried it out as uh, that often. He did carry it out. Like one time he went after a business associate and threatened. I don't know if he carried it out. I think he might have. I, I don't know. But I don't know the answer I'm just to thinking maybe it's yeah. all talk. Maybe she's gotten so used to him making these sorts of threats that mm-hmm. she's desensitized to it. Well, the beatings and stuff were definitely. Well, and, the beatings, that's uh, yeah, a whole other story. Yeah. But I mean, the, the actual pyromaniac part of it, of threatening to start fires. Mm-hmm. If he hasn't actually been carrying that out up until this point, I could see where she would just be so desensitized that she's like, yeah, right, whatever. Well, I know that one time she she went to her her in-laws and basically was like, hey, you know, Martin's talked about, you know, killing you for the insurance money. And I guess the mom was like, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Ugh. That was the response. It, it's just kind of like. So That's she, disturbing. Yeah. So she's really. But let me send him another check. <laughs> A little envelope. Maybe he can use that yeah. for the uh, the hitman money. Well, you know, <laughs> oh, I know. Wouldn't that just have? Yeah. Fortunately, it had run out by then. Ugh. So, so she basically, as I said, thought it was. You know, she humored him until December 1994. Martin, at this time, was living in California because he's trying to. You know, he's an, a struggling actor. And he makes a trip back to Washington with his then-girlfriend to get his stored possessions out of the paying warehouse. So this is obviously action is, is taking place. There's no reason why he would suddenly just come to get his stuff. Leaving behind, though, in the basement, he left behind racing fuel from his past glory days when he could afford to play the race car driver. Martin actually told Risa that the fire would be set Friday, December 16th, or Saturday, December 17th, after his parents left work. Now, at this time, Risa believed him. On December 13th, she made a call to Farmers Insurance telling them that the fire was expected to take place in three to four days. Farmers Insurance then notified the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the next day, an ATF agent interviewed Risa. She had called them like a week or two before the fire, described it exactly. They surveilled the warehouse for a while and then called it off. But that was just one one mistake. They, you know, there, were, there were 24 mistakes that we itemized. So when the arson didn't occur, the surveillance was ended just before Christmas. After the date for the fire elapsed, Martin went back and asked Risa to start the fire herself. She declined, <laughs> saying, hey, I've got a child here. I can't take the risk. Why would she even want to do it? In the, I mean, does he think that she wants part of the insurance money? What what motive would she have to help him? A fear? Well, yeah. I mean, she was in a horrible, horrible place. Like, she was totally afraid of him. I feel like she just hoped it would all go away and had the courage to once see, like, hey, I totally believe that you are now going to do this. And she steps up and goes to the authorities. So Risa didn't tell law enforcement that Martin was still scheming to burn down his parents' building because she assumed that they were still surveilling the building, Well, yeah, right? I mean, she already told them. She, she did an interview with them. She knew the feds were involved. The insurance company was involved. I would think, yeah, you guys are the professionals. You take it from here. Right, right. So... Not only were they not watching the building, they weren't keeping tabs on Martin Pang. On January 5th, 1995, at around 6.30 p.m., Harry Pang leaves the building. It's believed the fire was set just a few minutes before 7. By 7.02, a band member that used part of the building to practice called 911, saying smoke was coming in. So this guy is literally... He's in the building. Yeah, apparently one of the... It was like a heavy metal band, and one of them went to uh, Mercer Island High School with Martin, and so they they rented that space. So he's sitting there and, you know, jamming (laughs) by himself, and all of a sudden... He's he's like, like, wow, I'm really on fire here. There's smoke. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, so he's like, gets out, goes next door uh, to the payphone, he drops a quarter in. Payphone? What's that? I know, exactly. This is 1995. So the warehouse was located just a few blocks from the kingdom. And within minutes, five engine companies, two ladder companies, an ambulance, one paramedic unit, an air supply unit, and two command officers were dispatched. And they got there, like, really quick. High-level fire department officials knew that the building had been the target of arson threats. But the fire companies that responded did not know 
The boots on the ground responders also didn't have a building plan. They had no idea that there was a basement in that building. Because remember, this was built in 1908. There was all these, you know, weird additions. And they just, they had no idea. Yeah, this is like, what, 80 years after it was built. And it's probably been changed. The footprint may have changed many times. Oh, it was huge. Yes. So... A large plume of smoke filled the air. The wind was calm that day, and the column of smoke rose vertically above the fire. Firefighters are trying to contain the fire from all angles of the building. But by 7.20, something goes terribly wrong. Battling the blaze on the first floor, they don't know that below their feet, in the basement, was the belly of the beast, the origin of the fire. Explosive flames licking the support beam The old building made a rumbling sound, and the unthinkable, a section of the main floor plunged into the basement below as flames spewed from the center, and black smoke rendered everything invisible. Here's Fire Chief Claude Harris, who says because of the heroics, seven firefighters were able to get out. One of the lieutenants that uh, perished on the fire had the concern of his crew, and he told his crew to get the heck out of here and they bailed out through uh, two windows on the west side of the building. That's some of the heroics that uh, were exhibited at that fire last night. So that's one of the lieutenants who would perish in the fire. Mm. And basically he's saying, get the hell out. A split second later, two fire lieutenants and two firefighters plunged 20 feet into the 1,400-degree hell below. At roll call, four firefighters were not accounted for. They tried to rescue their brothers, but by then the fire had grown into five alarms. More than 100 firefighters battled the blaze and smoke could be seen from Bellevue to Mercer Island. And the five alarms, I mean, that is that is unheard of. That almost never happens. That means that they have called in five different firehouses to come help them with the blaze. Yeah, I mean, it was... I mean, to say it was on fire, I mean, it literally was an inferno. And can you imagine what that was like for the firefighters battling it, knowing that there were four of their brothers in there and they tried to get them out and they couldn't? I mean, it's like not only are you contending with this huge, Yeah, you have to keep working. You have to keep working and you know you can't help them. You know you can't help them. That's tragic. I mean, I almost almost hope that, that they weren't told about the firefighters that were still in there. They you know, were. The new, I mean, the new crews, as as the new crews are yeah. arriving to go in, I hope they weren't told just because there was nothing they could do about it. And why burden their minds at that point with this added layer of stress? Well, by this time, as you can imagine, all the news crews are down there and it's all coming out there. You know, it's, it's in real time coming out. Yeah, but they don't have Twitter and Facebook and all these things. So they may not have known the details of what was going on. Well, I think that when they did, you know, when you do the roll call right. and then, you know, you're talking and then fire one firefighter's talking to another. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, I, that's we don't, true. They we have the radio know. calls and yeah, all that. Yeah. They may have known. It is 1995. But, you know, it's not like 1892. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, unfortunately, I guess it's my, I guess it's my, my you're trying to protect them. My from, sad hope that yeah. they that they didn't have to no, deal with that. No, but I they think probably did. They knew that Lieutenant Walter Kilgore, firefighter James Brown and Randy Turlicker died of asphyxiation after their air tanks emptied. Lieutenant Greg oh, Shoemaker... That's who- terrible. Wait a minute. Wait a okay. minute. So they dropped into the fire but were mm-hmm. not killed instantly. D- it doesn't sound like it. They were down there for several minutes at least. Yeah. In so, the flames alive before they were asphyxiated. Yeah. So they didn't get all the bodies out until 72 hours after the fire was reported. Hmm. And so Lieutenant Greg Shoemaker, who lost his helmet and oxygen mask in the fall from the first floor, died of smoke inhalation. And, Kim, it's, it's hard to put into words what this tragedy did to Seattle collectively, but also the sacrifice which firefighters make to keep the public safe. Here's then-Mayor Norm Rice. Tragedy should remind every Seattle resident of the enormous risks and terrible sacrifices that our firefighters make every day as they protect this community. Later, thousands would gather outside a huge funeral procession and televised funeral. And as the bagpipes are playing here, a huge screen has been mounted and they are showing images of the firefighters with their family and them as children. 
They pan the audience and so many attendees are in uniform. There's not a dry eye in the place as the final bells are called for the following. Lieutenant Walter D. Kilgore. Lieutenant Gary A. Shoemaker. Firefighter Randy R. Turlicker. Firefighter James T. Brown. I mean, the footage on this was so difficult to watch. I wonder about the victims. Do we know much about their stories, their families? Yeah, I mean, the two lieutenants were older. I think they were in their mid-40s, and they were both married and had children. And then one of the firefighters was married, just started out, and then another one was, I think, four years in. So they were beloved, and the procession with all the fire trucks and all the people, I mean, it was just such a huge, huge deal. Yeah, and Um, I I just want to note that, you know, it's not just that we lost four four heroes, four firefighters, you know, in a line of duty. That is tragic. But individually, we lost family members. We lost fathers. We lost brothers. Like, them as individuals, their lives mattered outside of being a fire. Like, yes, you know, it's fantastic that they were first responders, that they wanted to take care of their community and protect lives and property. And, like, that is enormous. But mm-hmm. outside of that, you know, they also had lives. Like, they were individuals who were loved and cared about and who loved and cared about others. And and that was taken out of the world. So I just I just wanted to, I don't know, talk about the victims a little bit because I feel like in this case, it, it almost is lost. I mean, we say four Seattle firefighters and you instantly go, oh, that's a shame. And it's like, you haven't even heard their names yet. Yeah. And this was the biggest, in the Seattle Fire Department's history, this was the biggest loss. And um, I think that we can link our uh, to our YouTube channel this this video that's like a 12-minute video that they put together. And in the background of the video, there's The Last Dance by Garth Brooks. Mm. And it's just so, like, you can't get it out of your head. So if you have an interest in kind of learning more about who the firefighters were, we will link that to our YouTube channel because it's definitely, although it's, you know, it's something that we, we shouldn't forget. And, and Seattle doesn't forget, you know, especially when we get more deeper into the story that 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 these deaths possibly could have been prevented. Mm-hmm. So we'll get more into that. But in the local news coverage of the fire, there's an interview with Harry Pang, and, and he just sounds so crushed. When they heard of the fire and the deaths of the four Seattle firefighters, the Pangs had no idea that their own son was a, pretty much a primary suspect. The following week after the fire, Risa again stepped up, agreeing to wear a wire during multiple conversations. Martin wouldn't admit involvement in their initial conversation. He admitted only to joking about his plans to burn down his parents' warehouse for the insurance what? money. Yeah. A brave yeah. woman, though. Oh, yeah. Risa? I was blown away by her bravery to, yeah. to not only have this guy who has threatened her, who has abused her, but has carried out this threat and actually killed people. And now she's going in with a wire to talk to him. I know. That takes some guts. It takes some real guts. In the second conversation, he spoke with her even less. The third, he just didn't even want to have anything to do with Risa, although I don't think he suspected her of wearing a wire, but he wanted to step way back from this because it had gone sideways. And, you know, Martin was placed under police surveillance as law enforcement began to build their case against him. So at this point, did they know for sure that it was arson? And did the insurance company never pay out because of that? I don't know the particulars of whether or not. I mean, I think that they they quickly learned that it was arson. I'm just wondering if he ever got any money. I'm sure he didn't get any money, but his parents did. But who knows if they ended up giving it to him? You know, I mean, I don't know. I would hope not at this point. I know. I know. I, I would hope that they did. But I'm assuming that because they didn't have anything to do with the arson, they would still get paid on the policy. But I don't know. But one thing that we do know is that they knew about this plan, the ATF, the Seattle Fire Department, now the SPD is involved on this. You know, they they so he was, you know, looking pretty good for this. At some point, they realized that it was arson. I don't know exactly when, but they probably figured it out pretty quickly because when they (laughs) determined 
that it started in the basement yeah. and there was all the fuel down there. Yeah. They usually yeah. can figure that stuff out pretty quickly. Yeah. So despite being shadowed by police, Pang bolted on January 17th from Seattle to California on an Amtrak train. So remember, he lived in California, but still, he, he went back home. Surprising that they didn't have some I, kind I of a court order that he stay in the state I, or I something. Know. I know. So by the time investigators gathered enough evidence to arrest Pang, he disappeared. On February 19th, Seven weeks after the fire, he flew from Los Angeles to Mexico City and then to Rio. He actually purchased the ticket to Brazil in his own name and was even so bold as to apply for a visa. The FBI stepped in when it became known that he had fled to Brazil, then an international fugitive. Now, Duff says he and his writing partner, Eric Nalder, were also hot on Pang's trail. Eric even got an airline uh, reservation person to check the records for Martin Pang on a certain flight. And that person confirmed that, yeah, he had taken that flight to Rio. I jumped on a flight as soon as I could to Rio to try to uh, get him there. But as I was like either at the airport, going to the airport, the news came across that he was arrested in Rio. So it wasn't gonna be that easy to talk to him. When I got there though, I uh, met this guy, Manuel Montoya who's a fascinating character in this. So we'll get to Manuel Montoya in a minute, but one Seattle journalist, King Five's Linda Byron, did get to speak with Martin in Brazil. I mean, she waited at the doorstep of the courthouse. Linda Byron, by the way, is like a Seattle institution. (laughs) She is a phenomenal journalist who's been here for many, many, many years. And just, she's awesome. And kudos to her for like putting in that sweat equity, waiting for that interview. And I, I think that that's what local investigative reporting is so critical. And I I just wanted to shine the spotlight so brightly on the folks that covered this case. And now, but also, you know, this investigative reporting is so important. But I'll get off that soapbox for a second. When Linda Byron did speak with Martin, who at the time was denying any involvement in the arson, you know, you can let me know how good you think his acting skills are. About the four deaths of the firemen, uh, I cried. You know, uh, I think of my family and what would have happened in, in those shoes when I finally got up the uh, the courage inside to go down and see the building. It was like saying goodbye to uh, a sibling. Mm-hmm. And I also said a prayer for the firemen and the families. Okay, he almost sounds like he's reading from a script. Like he's figured out ahead of time what he wants to say and he's he's memorized it and he's just reading it. There's no emotion whatsoever in what he's saying. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't buying it and, you know, later... Linda wasn't either, would say that, that she wasn't either. But Martin, like I said, was playing the victim card. She asked him why he fled to Brazil, and he was acting like he fled there, well, because he was being falsely persecuted. Well, uh, there's supposed to be no extradition from Brazil, and I figured that uh, the dust would settle, the truth would come out, mm-hmm. and uh, then I could go back. Basically, I was running scared because uh, I was being railroaded. Still am. (laughs) I know. I just want to note the fact that he used the term railroaded and his grandparents came to the country to build the railroad. And I almost feel like he's he's using their memory in vain by using that terminology. Well, I don't think that, you know, you can't even compare him to his. No. These hardworking immigrant, you know, came to America for a bit. I mean, he's just completely. It's just how far off the rails, hello, all of these like railroad terms that we use mm-hmm. these days. It just, mm-hmm. it reminds me of how far he has gone away from the legacy that his parents and grandparents have built for his family. And I think that's one of the most unsatisfying things is that there's no reason why other than who he is. He decided to be this way. Mm-hmm. You know, many times you hear cases and it's like, oh, they had the most horrible childhood. Oh, they, you know, not to justify, but to understand it. Yeah, there's and no here, understanding. There's, there's no understanding the, the total narcissism, the total entitlement. But this is when, when we start talking about the real psychology of it and chemical imbalances in the brain, possibly, and other things that must be happening that we don't know about. Because there has to be a reason, right? This isn't normal human behavior. But it isn't a reason, it doesn't sound like at least, it's not a reason that came from his nurturing Mm -hmm. as he was growing up. Mm -hmm. This somehow is built into his nature. Yeah. And he, and the real reason Martin fled to Brazil, he knew that Washington state allows for first degree murder and arson charges if a firefighter's death results from an arson. 
even if the arsonist didn't intend on killing anyone, because an arsonist ought to know that firefighters will be responding to the fire. In Brazil, the law is completely different, and that is exactly why Martin went there. They don't have the first-degree murder for arson. Hmm. So let's get back to Manuel Montoya, because he plays a huge, pivotal role in this. That's the person that Duff met in Brazil when he tried to get that interview with Martin Pang. Manuel is a music promoter, I think. Then he became an FBI informant and was like hanging out with Martin Pang in Rio for eight or nine days, just keeping tabs on him for the FBI. I didn't find that out until a year later or something. I just met Montoya there because I was trying to find Pang or anyone that had talked to him in, in Rio. So when Pang was still in California, as he was hatching his plans to flee to Brazil, he had convinced Montoya that he was innocent. Because Montoya had met him earlier in the L.A. area and at that time was helping to set him up in Rio. This guy that's falsely accused of something needs to go to Rio for a while, get out of the United States. You know, so he was introducing him to people, and I, th- I think he even helped to arrange an apartment for him. So I don't want to compare him to Ted Bundy, but I think that, like, when you hear the interview, there's still that kind of, like, that he did with Linda Byron. There's that mm-hmm. control piece there. Mm-hmm. But then he's also, it's not just whining and dining the women. It sounds like he was really able to convince people that he was a good guy and that, you know, that they, they didn't just had see, him all wrong. Yeah, they didn't see this this evil inside of him because he knew how to play that card. Fortunately, Montoya realized that Pang was lying to him about this, you know, being unjustly accused when he saw a piece on America's Most Wanted (laughs) and learned about the deaths of the firefighters. And he called the FBI immediately and realized, like, I'm on the wrong side of this and I will be your confidential informant. The FBI then sent Montoya to Brazil explicitly to keep track of Pang as they worked on getting an extradition order, and that would just take them forever. At one point, authorities actually discussed kidnapping Martin and taking him to Uruguay, which had a different which had different extradition laws. That plan didn't work out, and you know, the FBI started getting antsy and they decided, hey, we we should probably not lose Pang because we know that he's slippery. They wanted to get him into custody, but because he was in Brazil, they had to work with Brazilian authorities. They arrested him on March 15th, 1995. The legal battles would take over a year. Pang's lawyers also argued that an alleged confession Pang made to FBI agents in Rio on March 16th was coerced. So they were trying, they were working through all these things because Pang to the FBI agents, did say, I did it, you Hmm. know, and then they tried to walk that back. Guess who his attorney was in this? John Henry Brown. I just have, isn't he everyone's attorney? I think he's everyone's attorney. (laughs) I think so. So basically, these legal battles were, of course, just what Martin hoped for. Lots of attention. Mm. Well, and his lawyers did their best to limit his possible sentence. So, you know, they could negotiate this because until that was negotiated, he wouldn't come back prosecutors were trying to get him back without any conditions, but in many ways their hands were tied. He wouldn't be extradited unless they agreed that that he wouldn't be charged with four counts of first-degree murder. So on February 29, 1996, Pang was finally extradited to the U.S., and by February 1998, he finally pled guilty to four counts of manslaughter and was sentenced to 35 years in prison. And that was such a huge blow to firefighters, to the community. Like, everybody was like, how? How is he only getting 35 years? Yeah, he took away four lives and affected four families, an entire city, an entire fire department. Like, His crime really had so many ripple effects and such devastating impact on the community. It's hard to believe that he would get out of jail when he was, what, probably in his 60s, he'd be ready for parole. (laughs) Well, you know, as they say, hold my beer. I got more coming. Oh, boy. So Pang was a model prisoner until 2013. Mm. That's when he started planning for his upcoming release with a scheme to create an opulent lifestyle for himself by committing identity fraud. I talked with Seattle police detective Todd Jacobson, who played a key role in that investigation. Apparently, Pang and his accomplice planned to set up credit card accounts in the names of firefighters, police officers, and witnesses involved in Pang's 1995 conviction for manslaughter. His plan was to funnel money from those accounts into offshore bank accounts, but they needed an informant on the outside. 
So it was him and he had a person on the outside. He was looking for another person on the outside that had good information about identity theft. His person on the outside who um, ended up being named in this case was Charles McLean or Chuck McLean. McLean had worked at the Tulalip Casino, had been let go up there. But while he was working there, he had come across routing numbers, account numbers for their accounts receivable. So our informant kind of inserted our undercover as this person who could carry out the actual acts of setting up fake credit card accounts and fake bank accounts and purchase orders and things like that. And, and him and Martin both had conversations where they believed that they could get between five and seven million minimum, maybe up to $20 million through the casino. So basically, not only were they were they scheming to potentially rip off to Layla, but then also millions from the VA. Now, McLean also, supposedly, Charles had the account and routing numbers for the VA. And Peng said that they thought they could get between 50 and 100 million out of the VA through those accounts. Peng knew with good behavior he'd get out in 2018. He planned to take this nest egg back to Brazil, where he previously fled while under investigation in 1995. Fortunately, the three-month undercover investigation thwarted those plans. We ended up having several meetings with McLean. Uh, we had three meetings with him with our undercover, where he passed over information for us. And during that time frame, we also had recorded conversations between our informant and Tang while he was in prison. And then first week of June of 13, we end up having the third meeting with McLean outside with our undercover, and we arrested him at that time. When we arrested him, we interviewed him. He gave a full confession to not only him, but all of Pang's involvement and emphasized that Pang was pretty much the driving force behind this whole scheme. So the sad fact is that this fraud scheme didn't add much time to his sentence. In fact, Martin Pang got 33% of his 35-year sentence reduced for good behavior. He was released from prison on September 27, 2018. He served a total of 23 years and still owed about $3 million in restitution. His parents died while he was incarcerated, Harry Pang in 2004, Mary Pang in 2009. And when Pang was released, he was released without parole because at the time of his crime, there was no allowance for community supervision. Had he been convicted in 2018, he would have a mandatory 36 months of community supervision. So he's just out and about. And I asked Todd about how he felt about paying working the system yet again. I typically don't try to pay attention to what happens afterwards because most likely I'm not going to be happy with the ending um, with either plea bargains or light sentences or for, in his incidents, getting off a third for good time. Um, so I try not to follow up with that. But with Martin Pang, it's like, well, you, you want to do right because you know he probably isn't going to get the sentence that these four firefighters and anyone else involved deserved for him to get. I feel so bad for him to mm -hmm. think of all the hard work that he puts into these investigations, and then he feels like he has to walk away because the system always lets him down. I know, but I think that <laughs> is, so sad. It, it is sad. On the other hand, I, I commend him for the mental health and like knowing like, yeah. hey, and, and he's a he's a trainer now, too. And so he he trains his officers, his detectives to kind of have that same mindset, because once it's out of their hands, yeah. you know, they don't know what's going to happen. So let's talk about the legacy of this case. Duff says their investigative reporting revealed 24 errors. We did a big article called 24 Mistakes That Officials Made With the with the Arson Fire. That was our seminal article after, after months of investigating. Many changes were made about how firefighters respond to fires, and that's why investigative journalism, as I said, is so important. And here's Duff. That's a standard in journalism. When there's a disaster, what went wrong what mistakes were made, it's a standard investigative angle in almost all disasters. 
So that's what we did here with a lot of shoe leather reporting. So in 1999, a jury awarded $5.6 million in damages from the city of Seattle to the widow of James Brown. The families of the other three firefighters killed settled claims ranging from 450000 to $3.5 million. Jurors would go on to assign 75% of the blame in the firefighters' deaths to the Seattle Fire Department, and Pang was deemed 25% responsible. How do you decide a percentage of someone's life that you, you know, like a life is lost. So 75%, I don't know, that just seems odd. they, they have to do that, but yeah. in a stunning, stunning, and I don't know if this will be stunning to you, but in a stunning turn of events, did I say stunning? Martin Pang's attorneys actually blamed the fire department. The attorneys said the firefighters would not have died if the department had carried out a plan to prevent the arson after receiving a tip in mid-December. They said the deaths were, if not totally, at least in great part, the responsibility <laughs> of the fire department. That's insane. I mean, I get where they made mistakes. And yes, they did have some liability. And yes, they should have done things differently. But to say that, therefore, Pang was not responsible for 75% of this. Mm-hmm. I don't think I agree with that. So, you know, Duff weighs in on that. He says that it wasn't surprising because, you know, de- defense attorneys have to do what they do. But, you know, most people in Seattle just weren't buying it. And obviously under our law, if somebody sets an arson, no matter how many mistakes the firefighter might make, that arsonist is responsible. Those 24 mistakes are the reasons their lives were not saved. Yeah. They're not the reason their lives were lost. Yeah. I just I think that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't cause these firefighters to go into a burning building and die. I mean, that was, was caused by the arsonist. Yeah. And there were so many they've done so much. Obviously, not only were they hitting the, the belt with these huge payouts, deservedly so, but they made a lot of changes. What and were so, some of the changes that came about? Well, like having a, a, a plan of the building, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, before, you know, they had no plan to even when they when they went to the fire. So they, just stuff like that where, you know, you take a 360-degree look at, the, at, at what's going on before you send firefighters in. You know, you communicate with each other. They should have known about that investigation. You know, mm-hmm. firefighters should have known that there was already an arson, you know, that, that somebody had threatened to burn down the building. They should have known that going in. So lots of different changes in the way that they do business. I mean, they hadn't even inspected the building. So lots of changes that they made. Another sad aspect of it, you know, talk about his parents again. They knew he had committed this horrible crime, but would never accept it. Not truly. Apparently, Martin wrote a letter to his mother when he was incarcerated. It was very short, just wanting to let her know that she needed to leave him enough in her will (laughs) so that he could buy a sailboat and travel around the world doing good deeds for people. The nerve. I know. I I can't even. He... He clearly has mental issues where he does not get it. You can't treat people that way and then come back and ask for more. Well, it has worked his whole life, though. That's the thing. You know, spoiling a child, I mean, I think it's, it might be difficult. You you and I, have, I have five, you have four. You know, Spoiling the, the one, isn't possible yeah, when you so, have that many. <laughs> I, I just... I can't, I just can't imagine like, yes, I'm going to give this to you. Yes, I'm going to give this to you. Yes, I'm going to give this to you. I mean, I can't judge that, but you're kind of like, how does that feel good? How do you, how do they, how do they learn personal responsibility if they are never? Well, and they're such hardworking people. Yeah. But I can also understand where people who grew up in the circumstances they did, immigrant family with 10 children, they probably had a really, really hard life growing up. And they probably felt really good about the fact that they could, they could, give their children a better life and and the luxuries that they never could have dreamed of when they were growing up. Yeah. And, you know, that is the American dream, being able to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and have a nice life and provide for your children. And thank you for that, because that helps a little bit. But I still am like, I just all those little red envelopes stuffed with cash. At some point when they knew what he was doing, when they knew about his crimes, you think that that would change. And I think the surprising thing here is that even after all of his misdeeds came to light, he still was acting like a spoiled brat. Yeah. So one interesting thing, too, when he was released on parole, he decided that he wanted to change his name. He then chickened out at the last minute. According to the Tri-City Herald, he skipped a Kennewick court hearing to change his name to Mark Sun Lee for, he says, cultural, religious, and protective reasons. 
apparently they believe that he missed the meeting because he didn't want to have a confrontation with the sister of one of his victims, Kim Shoemaker Anderson, whose brother was one of the four Seattle firefighters. She traveled from Enumclaw and, you know, was going to, you know, raise hell. And he remembered her because, and I just love this little I edition. love Kim. <laughs> go Kim's <laughs> go, rock. Go Kim. Kim's yeah. are awesome. Well, wait, you're going to love her even more because apparently during his trial in 1995, she attended every day and once found herself sitting behind Peng and she was staring <laughs> at his long braided hair hanging behind his chair. And she recalls her her husband whispered, don't. And she just went out and pulled that braid hard. Oh, and I love it. The judge removed her from the courtroom telling her she'd had enough for the day. I got to say, Kim... Kim. You're a girl after my own heart. Yeah. I yeah. love you. Uh, yeah, exactly. And again, if you want to find out more about these Seattle firefighters, we're going to have that video about their lives up on our YouTube channel. You can also find us at sceneofthecrimepodcast.com. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs>